You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. How's everybody doing today? That was that was a pretty solid. I didn't. I mean, I didn't mind that response. That was pretty good. Um, did everybody have a good Easter? That was far less enthusiastic, so I'm assuming that not everybody had a great Easter. Uh, but I nonetheless uh, hope that you had a good Easter. If you don't know me, if we haven't like talked officially yet, my name is Josh. Um, serve as the lead pastor here at... Um, oh, you know what? Let me take this off. That's going to help tremendously. Just so that you could like, see my face, considering y'all are like, 15 feet away from me. Um, yeah, I hope you had a good Easter. I hope you got to spend time with family. I hope you got to enjoy yourself and enjoy time with others. Uh, I hope you enjoyed, if you were with us last Sunday, our service was our first time inside. So it was our first service indoors as a church plan. So that was pretty wild, uh, especially since we've only been having like services together for, uh, I would say, the, the first part of this year, right? Um, and I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed celebrating together uh, the reality of the work that God has done in Jesus Christ uh, to uh, conquer the enemy of sin that plagues every single human being on the face of the planet, right? That we all wrestle with this reality of death that's coming our way, but through the work of Jesus, we have been given a victory over that enemy, no thanks to us, but all through the work that he accomplished for us. It's an amazing truth to celebrate, and I hope last week you had an amazing time celebrating it. But here's the thing. For me personally, uh, I I had a pressing question that kind of uh, sat on my heart through several uh, days between last Sunday and this Sunday. And that question was this, what does that truth do practically? What does that truth do practically? What is the truth that Jesus has given us victory over death and sin? My man's like, preach, dad. Um, Death and sin do for us on a practical level, in an individual's life, in a community, in a city, or maybe even something less tangible, right, like a culture, something you can't see with your eye, what does it do on a practical level? Does it make us feel better? Is that the goal, the purpose of that truth? Does it give us hope, right? Maybe uh, maybe it's to make us a little bit more optimistic, or, or maybe it's to give us a little bit more peace. Maybe uh, it helps us feel loved as we live life in a world where it's broken and can feel extraordinarily difficult to feel loved and to, to believe it, right? Maybe it makes us feel better about the things, oh, the things that we've done, or maybe even, even like, like more acute, it gives us forgiveness for the things we struggle to forgive others about or the things we maybe even struggle to forgive ourselves about, maybe all of that is what it does. And while there are libraries, hear me, libraries that are filled with books trying to answer this question, and while each of those ideas is valuable and does in fact contain truth in some way, many, including myself, would advocate that all of those ideas And really the answer to the question, what does that truth do practically, can be summed up in one word, and that is transform. What does the truth that Jesus has given us victory over death and sin do? It transforms us. 
It takes what was broken and begins to bring healing into our lives. It takes hopelessness and, and starts to bring hope where we were hopeless. It takes restlessness and starts to bring rest and peace into our lives. But it does so much more than that. It takes us in, from darkness and transforms us into light. It takes us from guilt and transforms us and brings us into innocence. And oftentimes these ideas are difficult to grasp, right? Because we're still struggling and we're still stumbling and we're still faltering. And so it's hard to be like, yeah, 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 it transforms. But, but we are promised that the transformation that the gospel starts in us is a transformation Jesus promises to finish in us. And so what does the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what does that truth do in people, individuals? How does it transform, commu- I mean, sorry, it transforms us, right? Now, now, if we pause there, though, for one second, and you know what? I'm going to have to go ahead and go to my plan B because I don't think it's going to work. That's uh, also just like way louder, so I could probably hear me way better. Um, so what does the, the truth of uh, we're going to have to leave that there, too, because it's like ran all the way down my back. So, uh... Oh, look, my man. Josh, I appreciate you. Just yank. My man. What is the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus? What does it do? It transforms. Okay, but with that in mind, uh, if, if, if the gospel transforms individuals, people, I have another question. How does it transform communities? and cities, and cultures, right? How does it do that? And this is where it gets so interesting. Friends, this is where it gets good. It, it happens through the church. Everybody say the church. Nice, that's what I'm talking about. God, God's plan A for reaching uh, people, for reaching cities, for reaching communities, for reaching cultures is this collection of broken, but in the middle of being transformed people taking the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, out to those that need it around us. That's God's plan A and plan B and plan C of seeing people transformed by the truth that Jesus has won the victory for us. Now, before I I move on, I do want to say what I don't mean when I say transformed. Because the word transformed can mean a, you know, a few different things to a few different people. What I'm not saying is that people become more like a specific type of culture or a specific type of personality. Okay, the, the church of Jesus is meant to be an ambassador of God's heavenly kingdom, not our earthly culture. I want to say that again because I want you to understand what I'm saying, right? The church of Jesus is meant to be an ambassador for God's heavenly kingdom, not our earthly culture. And so the goal when we talk about transformation, use that word, is not that others would become more like you or become more like me, but that they would become more like Jesus, right? That's the idea of transformation, to see people own their culture, own uh, where they come from, own their background, but to worship God in spirit and in truth and to see their character become more like the character of Jesus, 
That's even why I, I, I specifically asked Josh, like, yo, can you sing a song in Spanish? One, because I'm going to get heated when that bad boy comes on, because that makes me hype. But two, because I wanted us to hear the reality that the echoes of God's worship and praise are not limited to white culture or black culture or Hispanic culture, or Asian culture, or English or Spanish or Mandarin or whatever. But it is a universal truth that goes out and transforms people universally, but keeps them in their culture while transforming their heart and their life. Right, I love the way our brothers from the Bible Project describe this idea in their video on uh, the book of Titus. They say it like this. The church is an agent of transformation. Say that with me real quick. Transformation. Say transformation. That was far less good than the time we said church. So I'm going to do that again. All right. Everybody with me say transformation. That was much better. The church is an agent of transformation, not through culture wars, or cultural assimilation, but through wise participation in culture. Maybe that's the culture of Southeast Austin or Dove Springs, where we're at right now. Maybe it's the culture of Westlake. Maybe it's the culture of downtown. Maybe it's the culture of San Antonio or Timbuktu, right? But engaging wisely in that culture to see those individuals come to faith is what the church does. And really, this is why we planted Refuge Community Church. Right, our mission statement, check this out, is literally we exist to glorify God by making disciples that shape excuse me, our communities with the love of Jesus. That's why we exist. That's why we're out here. That's the goal. And so I want to ask you a question, having said that. Why are you a part of or even visiting out here getting a tan? Why are you even visiting a church plant? This church plant, maybe even. Because it's often easy to go to church thinking, yeah, I need friends. I feel like I need some purpose in my life. When friends, what we really need more than any of those things is transformation. To be made into the image, the character, the affection, the mercy of Jesus. Do you come here anticipating, hoping that God, the God that made everything and sustains everything, is going to meet you right here in a parking lot of this church when it's awkwardly a little bit warm, it's getting a little sticky, but he's going to meet you right there and transform you? Do you have an anticipation, a hope, looking forward to what he's going to do in your life to transform you, but also to equip you to go out into the world to take that transforming power of the gospel to those that need it that ain't here right now? Because that's that's what the church, not just the church plant, not just refuge, not just Terry Road, but the church universally, that's what we're here to do. Friends, today we're going to be starting a sermon series in the book of Titus. Titus. Okay, I remember, uh, y'all remember telling Demetri about the book of Titus. You been reading it, bro? Nah, he ain't been reading it. Nah, I'm just playing. I'm just playing, brother. I'm just playing. And I'm praying that as we work through the book of Titus, I'm praying that it's going to speak directly to the truths that we've already laid out, but most specifically and most acutely, the truth that the Lord desires to transform you in order to see others, in order to see communities, in order to see our city, our state, our world transformed by the goodness and grace of Jesus. Okay, now today what we're going to do is is we're going to jump into the scriptures just a little bit, but I want to spend a second before we get there uh, really kind of advocating 
the book of Titus to you. All right, what does that mean? Well, well, I know that Titus ain't really on everybody's radar, right? Raise, I'm a little, I'm a, I feel a little anxious doing this because I ain't think about doing this, but raise your hand if you've read the book of Titus. Okay, everybody would have read it. No, I'm just playing. I'm just kidding. But I know that not a lot of us have spent a lot of time in Titus, right? There's not conferences on Titus. There's not books written about Titus. There's not a lot of sermon series we go and dive in about Titus. And so I know it can be a little foreign to us, but I want to advocate it for you before we go into it because people are really like theologians are really big on Titus. In fact, it's been called a bargain basement epistle. A bargain basement New Testament book because while rarely spoken of, the truths in Titus are so powerful that they often blindside us, deconstruct the way we see Christianity, and then build it back up in a beautiful and healthy way. It's also, check this out, it's also been called a church planting handbook because Paul, the author of Titus, uh, is actually writing to Titus, uh, his spiritual son, who is basically in charge of what amounted to a fledgling church plan. And so I hope that alone gets you a little bit excited. I, I also want to, to take a second because to understand exactly how much this book directly applies to where we're at right now, what we're doing right now, and why church plants are amazing, why, why us engaging in, in the rhythm of grace and mercy and the Christian life in young churches, especially in churches like uh, churches in this area. In order to understand that, we first have to understand a bit of background about the book of Titus. And while we don't know a ton about Titus, the individual, he's only referenced a handful of times in the Bible, in the New Testament, uh, we know a lot about the island of Crete, where the church actually was located. Okay, and so I want to break down that a little bit. Crete was actually the largest island in the Aegean Sea, okay? And the Aegean Sea was right north of the Mediterranean Sea, which made it a critical trade route on the Mediterranean trade routes. So if you wanted to get something from one side of the sea, but you were trying to get it to Greece, the island of Crete was like a a required pit stop, making it like an economic dream. That means they had mad money. So everybody was really getting a piece there. So they, they were wealthy. They, they, they generally were doing pretty good. But besides its economic influence, check this out. It was also an island and a people that was steeped in mythology. Mythology. All right, if you're a Greek mythology nerd, you're fixing to get like really zoned in here. The island, I mean, the, the city of Knossos, which was the city uh, that, that really was, was the main city uh, on the island of Crete, was said to be home to the mythological king Minos. And this king Minos was an ancient and mythological king, but he was said to be the son of Zeus, right? Like Hercules, except for this guy was crazy. Because in the mythological stories, He's over here, like, demanding, like, teenagers from the city of Athens to bring over to Crete so they can sacrifice the teenagers to uh, the, uh, the monster that lives on Crete, which is called a minotaur, right? Minus minotaur, kind of using the same language there. He's really so demented, so weird, that the mythological writers actually write him later on into being the judge and ruler of the underworld. And so if you could almost think of it like this, he almost gets to like Satan level status in Greek mythology. And it's important to note this because this is the origin story of the Cretan people. 
This is the origin story of the people that live on this island. And hear me, origin stories, shared histories, they're important because they shape how we see ourselves. Anybody that's been through some things, you know exactly what I'm saying. You've been through some stuff and it sometimes hurts you and cuts you in a way that leaves you thinking differently about yourself. That's what shared history, that's what origin stories do. And for the Cretan people, this is their origin story and this is how they see themselves. The descendants of tyrants and brutes and almost like like Satan level evil people, but who have now come into a bit of a wealthy spot. And so they got some riches and some money. In fact, recent archaeological studies have shown that the ideas of wealth, riches and the ideas of war, violence were, were, were literally easily found in the religious, political, philosophical, even just daily art of the day. So the artists that lived in Crete saw this idea of war and wealth as so integral to the day-to-day life of a Cretan that it made its way into the art of every single aspect of their life. So it's no wonder that prior to the Roman conquest of Crete, one of Crete's biggest moneymakers, check this out, a mercenary army that didn't go to war, based on who had the best values, but rather went to war based on who had the biggest bank account. Wealth and war, this is how they saw themselves. It's what led to a Cretan philosopher named, and Lord help me, um, Epimenides, to say about Cretans, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, a quote that Paul actually in verse 13 is going to affirm about the people that live on the island of Crete. So that's the Cretans. And it's on that island filled with those Cretans that Paul thinks that's like the perfect spot for a church plant. That right there where they're big on war and violence and getting what they want and taking what they want and enjoying it and and indulging in it to the most sinful levels, that's a spot for a church plant. And for some of us, that sounds crazy. That sounds a little scary. To go to a place that's riddled with dangers, people willing to take from you, and to lay down your life and to serve, it's a scary thought. I would even go so far to say that that's the main reason this area right here, Dove Springs, Southeast Austin, has only had 4.5 churches per 10,000 residents in it about as of two to three years ago. Right? That these ideas of rough edges around communities and certain types of people would intimidate us and say, no, we want to fearfully retreat away from this idea. But, but hear me, on the other hand, for others... Some of us are like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's the right place for a church plan, right? Grace. Uh, Bad people need grace. That's not a hard idea. And the gospel is for everyone. Yet, hear me, hear me. We bring our own ideas. We bring our own strategies. We bring our own language from our culture or other cultures that aren't the culture of the area, aren't the culture of Crete. And we go in thinking, well, this will just work, right? Because this is what worked over there. And then all of a sudden, Time after time, it doesn't work. We get discouraged, and all of a sudden, we get broken down. And you see, it's often that type of wide-eyed, naive optimism that leads to burnout and discouragement, especially when you're doing ministry, when you're doing the gospel work in hard places. So 
So we don't need naive optimism. And we don't need fearful retreat. Then what do we need? What do we need? Friends, today I believe that we specifically, as a church community, need truth. Truth. The truth of how the gospel changes hearts. Hearts from people of every tongue, every language, every nation, every tribe. By meeting them where they are. Hear me, where they are ethically, where they are ethnically, where they are uh, culturally, economically, but not leaving them where they are. Building those same individuals up in order to see them become leaders in their homes, in their communities, in their churches, in their cities, in their workplaces, right? That's the, the aim of the church, especially churches that are, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, I laughed because like, I looked over at my wife with the, with the stroller because I, all of you looked over at my wife with the stroller, so I kind of got tempted to look over there. And then I was like, oh, it's my wife. Um, right? This is what we need today. Okay, but in order to understand that truth, we're going to start today is not just saying, okay, well, let's get a big old bomb of truth. No, there's going to be several weeks where the book of Titus is going to break down what that truth looks like, how this transformation takes place, and how the truth of this gospel gets into people's hearts and souls and begins to make them new. But in order for that to make sense to us, today we just need to understand the truth and how we fit into that truth. In other words, we just need to understand how that truth works for us. And so in the last couple of minutes here, okay, we're going we're gonna to potentially have a little bit of a shorter day today. In the last couple of minutes, I really just want to look at the first verse of Titus 1. And that's it. The first verse of Titus 1. And we're going to take a brief look at three characteristics that it seems Paul believes are central to understanding the truth of the gospel in our lives. Okay? And so I want us to open up. To Titus chapter 1. I don't want us to go ahead and dive in. Okay, I'm going to read it out loud. Feel free to read it along with me if you want to. It starts like this. Titus chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. All right, check this out. When we dive into Titus 1, we're diving into a story that's already in progress. It's already in progress. Meaning, that first verse is a description of a man named Paul. And if you know anything about Paul, you know that this description of Paul is very different than the Paul we're introduced to in the book of Acts. You see, in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we're introduced to Paul as this dude that's like out there killing Christians. In fact, Paul, uh, who at the time goes by Saul, stood in approval as Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first Christian killed for being a Christian, is stoned right in front of him in Jerusalem. And this starts a wave of persecution in the early church um, where men, women, children are all killed. Paul is seeking to eradicate Christians from the face of the earth. And again, Paul is the leader. That's Paul's mission. Okay, until one day, 
on his way to a city called Damascus to presumably kill more Christians, uh, Paul is blinded. How many of you have heard this story before? That's a healthy amount of people. But we're going to tell that story anyway. All right. Um, On the way to Damascus, he's blinded by a light. He falls over and he starts crying out for help. And out of the crying out, out of the whimpering, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Paul's struck because he interacts and comes face to face, really, with Jesus. He's taken to, in blindness, right, to this house uh, in Damascus on Straight Street where he would later meet a man named Ananias. And Ananias would share the gospel, baptize Paul, and he would uh, be made to see and he would be transformed right then and there. Right, like a whole different human being. And so when we think of the idea of transformation, this seems to be a good place to start. Titus 1, verse 1, because we're looking at a radically transformed human being. We're looking at a human being that at one time, sorry, at one time was persecuting Christians, was killing them, and now all of a sudden is a servant of God, an apostle. It's a great place to look and say, maybe I wasn't killing Christians, but I do want to know if I'm being transformed. And what transformed looks like is being made into these things. And so what I want to do is take just a second to look at those. The first one from our text here is servant. Servant. Right? What does transformation look like? What does it look like for us to be a, a person that's been transformed? Well, we're a servant. Paul starts the text off by saying, Paul, a servant of God. One of the ways Paul sees himself transformed is by becoming a servant, someone that does the will of God. And and this servant word comes from the Greek word doulos, which literally, in the most explicit way that we can translate it, would be like slave. Like, I'm a slave to God. And now I know that this is a a word, this idea of slavery, even servanthood, right, is an extraordinarily difficult word because it has a difficult connotation. Right? We, We use words like that kind of with the backdrop of the evils of slavery in America and around the world, really. Uh, But you got to remember, when you read the word slave and servant in this text, that it was written 1,500 years prior to any of that really happening. Right? In fact, Paul wants to see that from the beginning, before the evils of earthly slavery and all that stuff, there was actually a good master. Right? There was a master who desired to see the world beautiful and, and wanted to equip and empower his servants in order to take God's good character into the world and make the world beautiful. That place was called the Garden of Eden. I'm not sure if you grasp that, but from the very beginning of this book, the idea wasn't to sit humans on our butts and kind of just give us everything on a silver platter, but, but to make servants who would go out and take God's goodness into the world. And I know you may be thinking like, yeah, that, even that's all right. But I mean, I, I, don't, I still don't like the word servant, right? I, I'd rather like to be called a son or a daughter of God. And I know most of us feel that way. Uh, but, but again, you have to remember who we're reading. Okay, this is a Jewish man from the first century. Okay, the first century in a world where things like labor and farming were critical to daily life. Hear me, friend. The line between son and servant was a really blurry line. 
people literally had children in order for the children to go out and work so that they could cultivate and care for the family. And on the other side, a servant at times was so close to his or her master that if, if, the, if the master didn't have children of their own in order to pass down an inheritance to, oftentimes the inheritance would go to a faithful servant. You see, being a servant in Paul's mind, when he uses this language, is closely knit to being a son or daughter. In fact, I would go so far to say that the question Paul really poses to us is, is my service reflective of my sonship? Is my service reflective of the fact that I am actually a son or a daughter? That I, that, I, that I understand my role within this household of God. Because if my service is weak, it's probably because how I understand myself to be a son or a daughter isn't intact. But when it is intact, laying down my life to serve my master, to serve my father, isn't ridiculous anymore. Because it's not serving one who hates me and uses me, but serving one who cares for me, provides for me. Servant. What does it look like to be transformed? It looks like to be a servant. But that's not where Paul stops. That's not his only characteristic. Next, he goes on and says, well, I'm a servant, but I'm also sent. You see, Paul, a servant of God, and then he goes on, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself with this word apostle. Okay, and, and this, this, this idea apostle, this word, was a group of men who were with Jesus and were commissioned by Jesus to go. To go and to take the good news of Jesus, the gospel, with them. We see this in Matthew 28, right? Like, go and make disciples of all nations, etc. This is Jesus instructing them to go. In fact, this word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, which literally means sent one. Just a, a literal translation is sent one. And while we don't believe, for reasons that I cannot go into on a, on a summer, getting towards summer evening, where we're all trying to get toward, toward home in AC, while we don't believe that the office of apostle, as described in the New Testament, remains the apostolic calling, meaning the call of God to go, remains. It's why we're out here. I hope you understand it. it's, it's a part of why you've come to faith. He didn't, he didn't just see you, and oh, I need to be careful now. Um, he didn't just see you and think to himself, you know what, I want their life to be a little bit better, so I'm going to save them. He saw you and understood you have the unique ability to speak to people's hearts in ways that other people who may not look like you or have your same experiences or have your same perspectives cannot and you, my friend, my brother, my sister, have been called and saved in order to go. Right? This is a fundamental part of why we're out here. It's why Paul sees the idea of being transformed as being one that goes. They're hand in hand. And you're thinking, like, how are they hand in hand? Why does all... But here's the thing, and this is where it gets, I think, juicy for a minute. Because that's not the last characteristic that Sean, that Sean, I don't know what that was, bro. You know, you're a godly man. So, I mean, like, godly Sean, Paul, you know, tomato, tomato, all right? That's not the last characteristic that Paul actually uses. After saying that we're servants, after saying that we are sent, he goes on 
an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. An idea, a truth that leads us to being godly. In other words, we're not just servants. We're not just sent to be a transformed individual means to be sanctified. To look more like Jesus. Paul understands that a fundamental part of his own transformation as a human, as a follower of Jesus, is understanding and wrestling with the truth that's actually transforming him. I want you to hear that. I'm going to say it again. I want you to grasp what I'm saying. Right? Paul understands that a fundamental, foundational part of his transformation is understanding and wrestling with the truth that's actually transforming him. How often do we wrestle with the truth of the gospel? Right, when you sat in there, and I'm not trying to get too aggressive with you, but when you sat in there and heard this idea that, that, that death is coming for all of us, but that Jesus has given us victory over death, how often do we take that and go, what does that mean? How does that work out right now in my life? To wrestle with that truth. Paul sees that wrestling with the, as the thing that gives way to our heart and our lives being transformed. And this happens in two ways. First, we learn the truth. Right? When you understand the gospel and you believe the gospel, you wrestle with the truth of the gospel, we learn the truth. As we come to faith, we learn that God is good. We learn who he is. And so we begin to learn like, yo, what God says is good. He is good. How he asked me to live my life is good. And so, like, that means, like, not cheating is good. And, and, and like being kind and merciful, those are good. And justice and peace, those are good. And so as I begin to learn truth and understand God is good and he's commanded me to do this thing, that must be the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, so that must be the thing that I should do. Right? We learn the truth. And I don't want to harp here, but friends, that's also why reading the Bible is like critical. Right? Like, like, without understanding who God is, as he has described himself in this book, we, do, we never understand this is how he desires for me to live. There's a book full of the truth of who he is and how he desires for us to live that gives us a, a beautiful direction to go, hey, live your life that way. Right? So reading the scriptures, wrestling with that truth, learning it, that's a huge part of how uh, the truth transforms us, how it sanctifies us. But that's not the only way the truth transforms us. It's not just about learning the truth. It's about experiencing the truth. It's about experiencing a truth that leads to godliness. And, and here's what I mean by that. When I come to understand the truth about God's desires and, and commands and that they're good, I also inversely begin to understand that my deeds, actions, thoughts are evil. When I begin to understand that mercy and kindness are good, I begin to understand that the sinfulness in me that has a propensity to be angry and violent and abusive toward other people, it's evil because it's the exact opposite thing that God has declared. God has declared is good. When I understand that justice and fairness are good because God has commanded them, I begin to wrestle with the truth that the sinfulness in me that has a propensity to cheat or to work my way around life to get everything I can for me without consideration of others is evil because it's the inverse, the opposite of what God has said is good in justice. 
When we begin to understand God's goodness, we begin to understand the great chasm that seems to lie between the goodness and perfection of God and the reality of the person that looks at me every morning in the mirror. And as we wrestle with that truth, we begin to experience the things that the law and sin begin to, to rain down. You're not, it's hard because we don't really escape that, right? We begin to wrestle with feelings of shame and guilt and regret and conviction. If you think those things oftentimes are not tools of God to bring about good things, you're wrong, friend. Because wrestling with the reality that when I look in the mirror, I see this person that goes against everything that's good in the world can sometimes spark that sense of, man, I just don't like this person. And so we follow the scriptures, right? We go to God and we, we begin to repent, right? The, this thing that the scriptures say to do where we come to God and say, God, I, I feel the guilt and I feel the shame and I feel all that crap. And, and I'm coming to you because, because I, I don't know where else to go. I've, I'm kind of pinned down between the fact that it's not just the, the, the systems that mess with me. It's not just uh, the, 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 the temptations on the TV screen or the computer screen. It's actually the thing that's at work inside of me. I have nowhere else to go. I need you. Help me. And in that moment, instead of receiving more of ourselves toward us, we receive the goodness that leads to godliness. We receive a wave of grace that's only possible through the greatest expression of that goodness. When God would send his own son into the brokenness of the world that's filled with sinful people, Filled with a bunch of people that, that when we wrestle with the truth, meet a person in the mirror that sometimes disgusts us, yet God sends this perfect, perfect um, Jesus into the world and to live the life we couldn't live and to do all the things we had failed to do, yet dies the death that we actually should have died. Also that the one who's angry and unkind could receive kindness and peace. Right, this type of goodness that comes in and shows us what goodness looks like and hear me, and then calls out and says, now it's time for you to be that goodness. You'll never have to do it on your own. You'll never have to forge it out of your own sheer will. God will always be there to fortify it with grace and with mercy. But what Paul understood when saying there is a truth that leads to godliness is that where the gospel meets us, right? Sorry, sorry, sorry. The gospel meets us where we are. That's the whole point of the whole sermon. Where the gospel meets us where we are, but it doesn't leave us where we are, right? The gospel meets us where we are, but it doesn't leave us where we are, right? It's a truth that reaches low to find us, but raises us up as grace and mercy call us to more than we thought we could be on our own, more than we could actually become on our own, but through the work of God to become who he's called us and designed us to be, right? That's the truth of the gospel, that where we have failed God has made us new and in an effort to make us new now calls us to be what we have always struggled and maybe even feared we could never be. But he's made possible through what only he could be in Jesus. I'm running a hair over. But I just got to give the last story. I'm sorry. It, uh, it honestly, we're going to finish with this. It reminds me of, that's how you know we're going to finish. 
Um, it reminds me of the show Sherlock. Anybody seen that show? Okay, so I got it. I'm going to talk about it with like five people after this. And the last season of Sherlock, and if you ain't watched it, the last season came out in 2017, so that's on you, all right? There ain't no spoiler alert. That's your fault, all right? In the last season of Sherlock, it has this storyline where Sherlock's partner and assistant, John Watson, has gotten married. He's gotten married to this amazing woman named Mary. But Mary had some secrets, right? And those secrets actually run the course of the season, and it kind of lead to people like really coming at her and wanting to try to get her. And, and, and it actually leads to this climactic moment where Sherlock is standing, uh, Sherlock Holmes is standing in front of someone with a gun pointed at him. And as they pull the trigger, Mary Watson, the, the wife of his best friend, John Watson, jumps in front of him, takes the bullet, and passes away. And the rest of the season, there is this kind of theme that works through it where John Watson becomes bitter at Sherlock. And Sherlock is riddled with guilt and with anxiety, with, with, with this trouble to understand how to make it right between him and John, if he's worthy of the thing that happened to him. It's all these moments until it leads up to, to episode two, season four, if you, just want, if you just want to watch it, all right, where there's this cathartic moment where John Watson and Sherlock are looking at each other and they're yelling and John is fighting all of his anger because he's trying to help Sherlock who is wrestling with drug addiction and he finally looks at Sherlock and says, you didn't kill my wife. She saved you. It was her choice. She had a choice and she made it and she chose to jump in front of a bullet to save you. You didn't kill her. I know you didn't. I'm just hurt and sad. And Sherlock looks back at Watson, his hair all disheveled. And he looks at Watson and says, her choice inferred a value on my life. And it's a currency I know not how to spend. Her sacrifice placed a value on my life. And it's a currency I don't know how to spend. Friends, the work of Jesus has come to give life, new life, redeemed life to each and every one of us. And it's a currency that he doesn't give us and then send us out there to try to figure out, to try to see how we can use our best life. He actually gives us a book and says, I'm giving you new life so that you can live the best life, so that you can pursue me. And in pursuing me, you could gain the things that you thought you needed and that you wanted, but, but, but to gain the real version of those things from the only person that can give them to you, me. And in receiving those, each and every moment, you are going to transform. You're going to be made different. You're going to have new missions. You're going to go out and see things happen. And it's going to be an exaltation and worship of me. But it starts with coming to me first for your life to be transformed. Over the next several weeks, through the book of Titus, we're going to take a look at how God transforms people. We started today thinking about us, 
But over the next few weeks, we're going to think about troubled communities. We're going to think about different phases of life. We're going to think about things across the board, and we're going to understand how the gospel comes in to make new the things that were dead. And how he gives us a currency that's infinitely valuable, but he shows us exactly how to spend. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this time in your word. Thank you for uh, the book of Titus, right? Um, that we believe you inspired through your spirit in the hands of Paul, in the mind and heart of Paul. Let the next few weeks as we jump into this book be refreshing, encouraging, challenging. Uh, let them desire, let it, let it stir us to desire transformation through you and in you so that we can go out and be transforming agents in the world. We love you, we thank you, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.